Man, that sunset is gorgeous. Grill, patio, sunset. Hard to get better than that. Unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in. Oh, burger time. So sit back, get comfortable. Carvana's got thousands of cars under $20,000 just waiting for you. I could stay here forever. Carvana, where car buying meets comfort meets convenience. Download the app or visit Carvana.com today. The following podcast contains explicit language. Hello and welcome to the Slate Political Gap Fest for July 27, 2017, the If Only This Were a Movie and Not Our Lives edition. I am David Plotz of Atlas Obscura from New Haven, no longer in Washington. Emily Bazelon of the New York Times Magazine is with us. Hello, Emily. Hey, David. And John Dickerson wah, 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 of Face the Nation, <laughs> CBS, is with me in Washington. So that's sweet consolation <laughs> yeah well it's not it's sad we're not all together again but i'm i know i'll come back on this week's Gabfest, the extraordinary swirling spectacle of the senate where mitch mcconnell in his dungeon laboratory has shocked to life a monster of healthcare reform possibly a skinny monster we will consider that spectacle then the bizarre showdown between president trump and his first best goodest supporter attorney general jeff sessions as well as a whole lot of other bizarre showdowns that are happening in the White House, a strange White House. Then President Trump's surprise proposal to bar transgender people from military service. Plus, we will have cocktail chatter. Before we get to the regular show, we have an exciting announcement. Our fantastic GabFest researcher, Kevin, is moving on to a full-time glorious job, as GabFest researchers do. And we're hiring someone new to succeed him. It's a 15-hour-a-week position, mostly Wednesday-Thursday work. It's based in D.C. It's a lot of research and working with us and figuring out topics and figuring out the best stories for us to read. And it's been a great stepping stone for people looking to make their way in journalism or in policy. So if you're interested, please reach out to us by emailing us at gabfest at slate.com. Send us a resume and a cover letter, and uh, we'll look forward to hearing from you. And oh, I should note, it's paid, and decently as well. It's a paid position. Thanks. So when I was in high school, I worked in a movie theater. Uh, Which over one? The summer. The Outer Circle. No longer oh, there. Oh, yeah. Oh. Yeah. Um, and one summer, the summer of 87, maybe, when I was there, the movie Jaws 4 was playing. And it was funny, because nobody wanted Jaws 4. Uh, it was Michael Caine was in it. He was slumming. It starred, starred, I use in quotes, Mario Von Peebles. Um, the shark didn't want to be in it. And every day I sat <laughs> The shark dolefully. tried to get out of the frame. <laughs> yeah, the shark was like, why am I in this movie? Sat dolefully at the Outer Circle box office while handfuls of people came and bought a ticket to Jaws 4. And lots of people came to buy a ticket to La Bamba or My Life as a Dog, which we're also playing. I feel like we are in the Jaws 4 stage of healthcare reform. This is why I raised this. It's like nobody wants this. It's a it's a worse version of everything that exists. It's depressing for everybody. And And following it is the biggest drag. And it's just it's just it's just they, and yet the Senate producers continue to produce yet new versions of it. <laughs> Force the franchise and, upon us. Yes. So I don't really have questions about what's happening. I just have a series of phrases which are like this is what I wrote. What the fuck? Are you fucking kidding me? You must be fucking kidding me. 
Really, John McCain? So that's not helpful. John Dickerson, what is happening <laughs> as we yes, tape on is... Thursday morning? What <clears throat> is what is happening? What is lined up to happen? Did you have to wear scratchy polyester uniform at the um, outer circle? I think I circle. did. I can't remember now. No, because I uh, in the jobs I had, I never in both concessions and selling computers, I never had to wear a uniform. But I always I wondered what that was. I was very proud because at the end of the summer, they tried to get me to stay on as as assistant manager. Nice. I was like, no, I can't do it. Got to go back to high school. Yeah, you got. Uh... Anyway, what's happening? Well, what's happening is that they're trying. Uh, I mean, I think Tom Price, the Secretary of Health and Human Services, said a version of it. I think on Wednesday, which is basically whatever can get to fifty. It's long been a piece of legislation in search of a of a vote result, not legislation that will do X, Y, and Z. And they are trying basically now, as of taping on Thursday, to whittle the bill down into the so-called skinny repeal, which basically just has in it some stuff that everybody likes. The problem with that is uh, two things. One, I was talking to a Republican senator yesterday, and I said, so what's in the skinny repeal? And this Republican senator said, we have no idea. Uh, so that's a problem. And the second thing is, even if you vote for stuff you like, there is a lot of stuff that you don't like or that one may not like that will happen as a result. So 15 million people will lose insurance. Premiums will go up because the individual mandate goes away. We've talked about this before. So in a sense, what they're voting on, while it is being sold as stuff that everybody likes, in a way, if you turn it on, uh, look at it, the telescope on another way, it has all the downsides that people don't like, with the exception of Medicaid, that funding would be capped. Anyway, so that's what they're trying to do is cobble together enough votes, get a skinny thing through, go to conference, in the conference, come up with something better. This is from the Senate perspective now, and then vote on that. Uh, the worry of those who are, have been worried about the Senate bill is that it comes out worse out of conference. And then the momentum to just pass something becomes overwhelming and something passes. Right. So, John, let's go to the game theory of this, the skinny. So, so if, if you are a moderate who does not like what has been in these bills, why on earth would you support a skinny repeal knowing that you're going to have to come back and take a much worse vote uh, a much harder vote coming out of conference because there's no there's very little chance that a bill that comes out of conference will be something that is acceptable to you as a as senate moderate i mean it's like exactly. it's like it's like you're hoping that the world will end with an asteroid strike so that you never have to take that other vote but you will have but to if take you, that other right vote. and also there's that and also presumably the people who have been opposed to these various versions from the senate whether it's repeal and replace or just repeal or the freedom option from ted cruz um those who have from the kind of centrist or moderate point of view who have opposed this have done so because they worry about the people who are currently either on Medicaid or in the exchanges and whether they'll get rough treatment. Those constituencies are hurt even by the skinny budget. And so presumably, if they were logical in their in their reasoning, and this would also apply to Senator McCain, who said he wanted the Senate to get back to bipartisanship, this obviously wouldn't be a bipartisan bill, then presumably they should vote against it. But, you know, logic has uh, has has had some met some challenges recently. And it's all going to come down to a few senators, right? I mean, we know that most people will do as the leadership wants. I think we know at this point that Susan Collins and Lisa Murkowski are not going to vote for this bill. Um, I would say Collins for sure. Murkowski seems like she's holding her position. And then we have this question about Dean Heller, I guess John McCain, although I really doubt he would end up voting against such a bill, and a few other people. Um 
I wonder, John, what you think of Trump's attack on Lisa Murkowski, how this factors into senators mind. So Trump tweeted something criticizing her. And then according to um, the other senator for Alaska, whose name I believe is Dan Sullivan. Oh, John is nodding. I get a little prize for that. He reported to the Alaska press that after Murkowski's vote, Ryan Zinke, the Secretary of the Interior, called Sullivan and called Murkowski and threatened them with repercussions for Alaska having to do with the energy industry and economic development. What do other senators think about this? Like, does that cow them? Does that bring Dean Heller into line? Or does that make people finally think, you know what, this is this is not a dance I want to do with this president? Well, one thing is that it finally shows some possibly effective uh, legislative work by the White House, because basically, though there have been a lot of conversations, the president has been ineffective, largely. Um, And so while you may not like the tactic, it at least shows that they're, you know, reaching for all the tools and engaged. I think kind of LBJ like. Could you say yeah, that? Yeah, well, or lots of presidents have done that kind of thing. I mean, um, either with honey or vinegar. And that, I, I think we can talk about this later in the in our other topics. But I think, you know, a White House that runs on too much vinegar uh, has mountains of problems. And, and so a smaller version of that here is that I think that senators who are befuddled by the behavior of the president, both on health care, where he sent mixed messages. Uh, and this is based on recent conversations as of yesterday, for example, uh, his behavior at the Boy Scout Jamboree, the way he's treating Jeff Sessions. I think the tolerance for that kind of hardball is much lower when you have an additional bill of particulars against the president. So I think that A, it's not, it doesn't look like it's going to work with Murkowski. And B, I think there are, I think it has effects with other senators. Senators who, by the way, the president really needs to throw the sand in the gears of, of some of the investigations, to not rush to the defense of the special counsel when the president is criticizing him and and other things. And also, we can, when we get to the transgender issue, I mean, you've got at least 10 or so Republicans who have come out against the president's move. One point, Emily, to your list of the the senators who might not vote for some bill is that I don't think they... They don't just need one more additional senator on top of Murkowski and Collins. They need two because I don't think anyone is willing to be that one person who stands up. You have to know that you have some flanking protection. And so there has to be a couple of them who are willing to say, you know what, we're not going to we're just not going to do it because it's it's. Uh, and, but no and actually, what would be better would be like four or five or six, which is what happened when the bills went down earlier in the week. Right. So the bills that have gone down earlier, which was the straight up repeal and the the Bikra, were but those were free votes. They yeah, there was a lot of free voting going on. You're right. Right. We haven't gotten to the end of this. It's really only at the end of this twenty hours of debate that we find out that's like the moment of truth. Right. I can't wait. Yeah, it really is the moment of truth, and that's why I think you can make a case that. Voting to open debate is a fine thing. Senate's supposed to debate. Uh, But if what is debated and what is produced as a result of the debate and the open amendment process is not something that is good, then that's where you don't vote. Don't vote for it. Um, Well, and also the notion that you vote for whatever is there so that it can get fixed in conference when everyone involved, if you're a moderate, when everyone involved in crafting these bills has been absolutely willing to move as far to the right in terms of stripping deregulations and, you know, essentially raising premiums and 
changing the way Medicaid is constructed. Um, that seems kind of like, why would you set yourself up for that? Why right. would you trust those people a to calm down on your side? Every time they have tried to move healthcare negotiations to a new room, it has not gotten better. It has not solved the situation. And this essentially just moves it to a new room. And we should also remind that the entire process is um, is outside of regular order. This is being done uh, a through a funky mechanism in the in the Senate reconciliation, um, which has its which creates constraints on this, and then also obviously because it didn't go through the committee process and there wasn't input from the minority and so forth and so on. So actually, Emily, let's talk about that for one second, which is what do you think is the long term impact, if any, of this form of institutional uh, erosion? The no, as John said, bill in secret, no hearings, no committee. Uh, no bill, effectively, that people are voting on. In my mind, it creates more cynicism about politics, which makes people more anti-government, which basically helps, is, Republicans. helps Republicans. And therefore, the cost of doing this is not as high for Republicans, which is why they're more comfortable doing it as it is for Democrats who rely on people's faith in government as a basic underlying foundation of their their actions. Right. There's this index called the Bright Line that Brendan Nyan, who's a professor of government in uh, Dartmouth and some other political science professors have put into place where they have, they're surveying, I think it's like 9,000 political scientists in the country about a variety of measures of the health of our democracy. Everything from like judicial independence to do people feel fully informed about, you know, whatever uh, legislation is being passed. And the political scientists being surveyed now, looking back at the past, there's like a nice upward trend from, I believe it starts in the 19th century in terms of how they think the United States does on these various measures. Until the, the, until the time between 2015 and 2017, when you see this marked slide in people's perceptions of how strong the democracy is. And that is part of what's at stake here, right? If you degrade the Senate as an institution, do all these things in secrecy, don't abide by normal processes, don't even have the text of the bill that is such a huge um, impact on people's lives, you create a situation in which like the institution is not functioning the way it was designed or the way it's developed or the way Americans expect it to. And then, you know, you have questions about how people what like, it's hard to know what that kind of perceptual slide means, but it's got to mean something. Yeah, I mean, I endorse what you've just said, although I would just put an asterisk, which is that I don't really care what 9,000 political science – that does not seem to me to be the what thing you need to measure because 9,000 political science pro professors are 9,000 political science professors. Well, they're like, measuring how yeah. they think we're doing along these measures. They're supposed to be people who have like thought about these different measures. Well, and, it's a way uh, to chart uh, with numbers what you see and feel in your bones. And one of the right. things, well, it's a way for them the how they feel in their bones. Well, it's not, they don't they don't make their decisions presumably based completely on emotion. There's a set there's a like thinking and reason. I mean it's the same thing with economists. They measure stuff. It may not be perfect. It's one thing you put into your calculator. And in time of shifting norms, measuring in some way what is a gooey, hard to pin down thing, which is to say a norm, putting some kind of numbers to it gives you some way to then start breaking down to its component parts, which is the the beginning of coming to a reasonable conclusion. Well, I'm right, glad Emily? to see you 
guys coming down on the side. Defending the, the liberal the academy, the experts, the liberals in the academy. Um, and you're John, being an anti-elitist. John, you know, before we, I have one. Wait, sorry. Before we get to to John McCain, which I want to talk about, I have a question about the timing of all this. If this thing ends up going to conference, so we're gonna that stretches us another month at least, I assume, of back and forth. Oh my God, Jaws eight. Um, hmm. And doesn't this severely hinder the ability of the GOP to do the other things that it wants to do? Doesn't this make tax reform less likely? I mean, they because yeah. w- in September they've got to deal with the budget. Right. They've got to well, deal with the debt ceiling, right? Exactly. And and how are they possibly going to to do another big bill this year if they really can't get to it until October, or November? Right. It, absolutely. It, the agenda is stacked up. And the other things are going to be really, really hard. Like tax reform is incredibly difficult. And as much as the president talks about the swamp, the swamp has not been drained in the way you really think of it, which is saying the influence of lobbyists and the receptivity of a White House to the inducements, emoluments and um, and uh, pleading of lobbyists is fully intact, robust and raging. So like uh, and then you have a whipsawed president who this week in a, interview with the wall street journal said was talking about um meeting with the owner of the of the new england patriots who said we'll be fine tax the rich and the president said i agree so that's interesting i mean so you're going to have a lot of the the ramble scramble from the president and then you know uh saying that in a republican party that, that does not believe that is creates is more kind of at its core than something like let's kill the individual mandate, which was itself born out of, uh, or at least when one incarnation of it was born out of the Heritage Institution. So, you know, it's not like the Heritage Institution ever said, yes, we should raise everybody, uh, raise taxes on the rich. So anyway, I guess my point is just a lot more complexity day by day. Um, You also have the barnacles that are building up on the relationship by all these other things, the behavior with Jeff Sessions, the Boy Scout speech. This is just this week. That stuff has a cost. And that is the cost that will be uh, born on the future attempts to try and get legislation done. Yeah, it's really hard to imagine how this agenda gets, you know, better or moves along faster. And also dwindling days and campaign is already starting. Um, You know, 2018 is each passing day uh, is more underway. Um, Hey, hey, hey. Sorry, I just felt felt like we were going to just be... um, (laughs) And actually, can I just... Ed O'Keefe sent me uh, something last week, which um, the number of scheduled legislative days between between now and September 30th. So it's like 11 legislative days before September 30th. But then the rest of the year is not like December's, you know, is chock full of activity because of the holidays and and November with Thanksgiving. So um, anyway, yes, to your point. (laughs) Um, So... Who wants to make a case for John McCain? I was was disappointed by the the uh, extreme enthusiasm with which people met. Not his return; it's great that he's coming back to do his job. And when he's ill, we're all glad that he is that's, temporarily at least that's, in recovery. That's fine. But by his his extremely righteous speech about all that was wrong with Washington and how, and presumably he sees himself as one of the the the. Uh, Speakers of truth. The stalwart, the stalwarts who is preventing all that is wrong from going forward. Well, except that in the speech he said, sometimes I've given into this and I've done things only to win and 
and I failed by the standard we're supposed to be measured by. So he does and he doesn't. But the test will be what he votes on in the end. I think you can um, vote for the motion to proceed, which people thought was in contradiction with his comments about bipartisanship, because if you really believe in bipartisanship, don't allow a bill to come to the floor that was born not of that process. Now, I think you've got a, a person who's just been diagnosed with a terminal illness, who's facing a tough diagnosis. Uh, who might be I, thinking about the value of health insurance. Who may be, who may be thinking about what it will be like to not see, you know, their grandchildren born too. There might be a lot of things going on, or just maybe we don't even know what was going on. But anyway, I think the, I think you can vote to go to debate a bill. But uh, again, if the bill that's debated and comes out is not, um, is not, doesn't include any democratic amendments or doesn't include any of the stuff that you talked about in your speech, then, then you vote against it. Well, we'll see. All right. I guess you could give them that, give them that benefit. I've never seen the charm of that man. I wasn't on the Straight Talk Express in 2000, which so many people were. And so maybe I missed the chance to see him at his finest. He has had moments like campaign finance reform and um, CHIP, the children's health insurance program, where he crossed the aisle. And so I think there's this tantalizing idea about him. And then it's like, you know, Lucy with the football, like lots of disappointment. Well, the other thing is, he's like a genuine hero. He is a genuine person who, like, has done so much for his country and so bravely. And so you can't gainsay that. Uh, I would also throw tobacco and um, Bush tax cuts in there in terms of why liberals have found him uh, an ally. Anyway. Yes. And there's also, obviously, people also can pile things up on the other side. People, uh, you know, naming Sarah Palin, not supporting the uh, holiday for, or thinking the holiday for Martin Luther King is a state decision, not a federal decision decision so all right slate plus members you get a lucky chance to hear us talk about donald trump's bizarre boy scout speech does anyone owe anyone an apology for what might they owe an apology and what are we to do with a president who goes and speaks to children like this if you are not yet a slate plus member you should become one and you can do that by going to slate.com slash gabfest plus this episode of the gabfest is brought to you by aura frames are you looking for the perfect gift to celebrate the moms in your life? Aura frames are beautiful Wi-Fi connected digital picture frames that allow you to share and display unlimited photos. It is super easy to upload and share photos via the Aura app. And if you're giving Aura as a gift, you can even personalize the frame with preloaded photos and memories. Aura frames in the notes that I have here says moms like Aura frames. I'm here to tell you that is like the truest statement in the world. I gave my mother an aura frame. She absolutely loves it. She's also always hectoring me to keep adding new photos to her aura frame so that she's got great new photos every week. So think about giving your mother or grandmother or aunt or sister or friend an aura frame for Mother's Day. It was named the best digital photo frame by Wirecutter and selected as one of Oprah's favorite things. Aura frames are guaranteed to bring joy to moms of all ages. And right now, Aura has a great deal for Mother's Day. Listeners can save on the perfect gift by visiting AuraFrames.com to get $30 off plus free shipping on their best-selling frame. That's A-U-R-A frames.com. Use code GABFEST at checkout to save. Terms and conditions apply. Uh, my old boss, Jack Schaefer, had a great phrase when um, two particularly detestable sets of people were fighting each other. He would call it the Battle of Stalingrad which is, of course, the huge battle that the Russians, the Soviets fought against the Nazis in World War II, uh, epic war-turning battle. But you kind of want both sides to lose. And the showdown between J. 
Jeff Sessions, the attorney general and President Trump is a classic battle of Stalingrad situation. On the one side, a president who has undermined the rule of law, the traditions of government, who is seeking to make the cabinet a mere imperial court of sycophants, uh, who is looking out for the protection of himself and not does not seem at all interested in the policies that he wishes to pursue or the hundreds of years traditions of law and order that this country has. On the other, quite possibly the most dangerous and to my mind worst attorney general in history shaping up who each day adds to a roster of policy abominations, who is wants more asset forfeiture, more prosecution of people for petty crimes, longer sentences, less protection for immigrants, and who's very effective at it. So it is a strange, strange showdown where you have a president seeking to humiliate his attorney general, yet not firing him, an attorney general who is sticking it out for the moment. Emily, why is the president seeking to humiliate Jeff Sessions? Trump wants an attorney general who will end the investigation of Bob Mueller, the special counsel, into the you know potential connections between Russia and Trump's campaign and whatever else Mueller is currently investigating. And he is putting that desire ahead of all of the very effective, as you say, policy work that Sessions is doing to carry out the core of Trumpism. This is what Trump ran on, making it much harder for um, undocumented people to stay in this country, the whole sort of trumping up of law and order um, based on this largely mythical notion that crime is rising. Just on Wednesday night, the Justice Department filed a brief in a case that is not a party to arguing that Title VII, the 1960s federal statute that protects against employment discrimination, does not protect people from discrimination if they are gay on the basis of sexual orientation. So this is a case in the Second Circuit that the Equal Opportunity Employment Commission, I feel like maybe it's the EOC, I'm forgetting. Anyway, the EOC took the opposite position and a number of lower courts have started arguing that Title VII does protect gay people. The Justice Department came into a case that it had no reason to speak up about and said no. And no career lawyer in the Civil Rights Division of the Justice Department signed this brief. It was a political document. So Sessions is like totally carrying water. This is like the Sessions-Bannon agenda that Trump was elected, at least in part, to carry out. And he also was loyal to Trump. He did endorse Trump early on when no other senator did. And this is apparently like all worth exactly nothing. And Trump is fuming in a rage and just taking it out on Sessions. It's completely self-destructive, I think. Ross Douthat actually had a good sort of like bill of particulars about why this on so many levels makes no sense. And there's been some pushback, you know, Breitbart is supporting Sessions and some Republicans in Washington have come out and said, hey, this is bad behavior. And yet Trump is doing it anyway. And so meanwhile, we're supposed to think that the investigation has no basis, that he and everyone around him is totally innocent, even while he puts the value of getting rid of this investigation over every other single thing that he supposedly cared about. The Ross Douthat piece was also, uh, whether you agree with his conclusions or not, just a beautiful piece of writing as he stacked up just as a clear argument uh, kind of each paragraph in this geographic tower that he was building was um was really uh, really well done i don't actually think this is like a hard call you know if you're a liberal and you don't like jeff sessions and his policies that's totally understandable i agree but this is a moment in which 
for the president to fire the attorney general so that he can put in place someone to do his bidding and fire Bob Mueller, that is like fundamental to the way rule of law has developed since Watergate. We have this kind of you know, we no longer have an independent counsel statute because both parties agreed that that was like letting prosecutors run amok. But instead, there's this like kind of detente going on or set of norms with some legal and rule based foundation, which is allowing for the president not to be above the law. That's like fundamentally what we're talking about here. And that's more important than, you know, Jeff Sessions is. Right. The objections one might have to his policy making—that's like just fundamental to the democracy. Yes, I certainly agree with that, Emily. I, I agree with that. It's, it is not actually not even clear to me that were Trump to fire Sessions that he could, in fact, accomplish right. that which he wants to accomplish. Have an AG well, confer- that's why he's not firing Sessions, right? Because actually, like, it doesn't get him anything in the end, probably. One of the things that's worth noting is that the attacks that the president has made on Mueller and on Sessions have been met by members of his own party rushing to the defense of the two people he's attacked. And so getting somebody confirmed, even if they were of sterling character and liked by Republicans in other contexts, would have to make so many guarantees as a condition of getting confirmed, probably, that would, that would uh, you know, bind them up more, more. And by the way, you'd have like two days of hearings or one day of hearing anyway, in which the entire Russia thing would be relitigated and obstruction of justice. And the whole recess appointment ideas probably also wouldn't work because the Democrats can introduce endless amendments and like just it just seems like you're right. Trump can't really get someone other than Rod Rosenstein, who, of course, is actually overseeing the investigation since Sessions has recused himself. It's just probably and that's actually in the end, I think, why. Sessions is just like hanging in there. Can I say by the standards, though, of what this Trump presidency was supposed to be about, though, this is extraordinary, right? In business, you would not publicly embarrass one of your key leaders repeatedly and undermine their ability and their credibility in the public realm, which is not unimportant for that job. It's just amazing when you think of the selling point of this presidency was that it was supposed to have the kind of efficiency of a businessman. This is like whatever the opposite of that is. you know what's funny is that everyone the, – the the line on all of this – in fact, I think Gavin used it as oh, pre- the president's humiliating or demeaning Jeff Sessions. The president hasn't humiliated or demeaned Jeff Sessions. He's humiliated and demeaned himself. It's yeah. like he's made himself look ridiculous. He's made himself look like a petty, stupid person. And if anything, he's made Jeff Sessions' reputation more sterling than it was before. I mean, I have to note that the content of the president's complaints are, A, that the Justice Department should criminally investigate Hillary Clinton, who was already cleared by the Justice Department and the FBI, and that Sessions should never have recused himself from the Russia investigation, a step Sessions took because he essentially had no choice based on the Justice Department guidelines. And so, again, utter contempt for rule of law, for any kind of restraint. Can we talk a little bit about the the hunt for leaks? Sure. Yeah. What leaks? Please have been found, tell us John? about it. So the Anthony Scaramucci, the new communications director, has you know started a war on leaks. The president cited in one of the things he wanted Jeff Sessions to improve on was fighting off or was going after these leakers. First of all, there are two different kinds of leaks. They're the ones that are inconvenient, ones that are illegal. Sessions is already investigating the ones that are illegal. He's he's charged somebody. Uh, and reality he's supposed where, to be making some more announcements too. So those are 
national security leaks. But the things that are un, uh, upsetting the president are more in the are are more in the category of the unfortunate leaks, like when he talks about hey I, about pardons, and then somebody goes out and tells the Washington Post. Now that's not illegal, and Jeff Sessions can't crack down on that from a legal standpoint. But and it's his own staff that's doing that. So as a result, Anthony Scaramucci is now going to like fire, has said he's going to fire all the leakers. Fascinating, having just spent some time with the Carter administration in 1979, where he, where he got rid of five cabinet members and Hamilton Jordan came in and said, I'm going to fire anybody who talks about this it, to the press, is that this is two things. One, it never works. Second, these leak hunts. Second, it is the sign of a dysfunctional White House and the result of the fact that people don't have clear lines of communication, that people don't feel like their opinions are valued, feel like the fact that there is not a common um, set of values that they're all moving towards and that um, they can kind of allows them to get up in the morning. That if a White House is consumed with self-regard and self-aggrandizement because it comes from the top, then you don't get pleasure in the day by advancing some idea. You get pleasure about whether you're like on, you know, on TV or the boss likes you. And that creates a situation in which there's lots of back channeling, lots of backbiting and lots of leaking to like knock down the other guy or have your idea win in the press. And so you don't fix that by at, by making the place more full of frightened people uh, by clamping down harder. It only like it only makes the problem uh, worse. And finally, leaks are necessary for White Houses because they have to leak stuff to test out ideas and knock down stories. They need the channels to be open to reporters, and those channels don't just flow with good information that helps the White House. They flow with other stuff too. So you can't knock down the leaks. John, you've been covering White Houses for a long time. Do you think? that this White House, based on your reading of the press coverage, is more leaky or less leaky than others? Much, much more leaky. And it's much, you know, the, the Obama and, um, and to some extent, in different ways, the Bush administration obviously had a famous leak case with the Valerie Plame, Scooter Libby, Carl Rove, Judith Miller event. And, and there was leaking, but there's nothing on this order. The, what the leaking that goes on now is about is is the sort of massive palace intrigue leaking. Ninety nine percent of the time, it's not about policy. It's not about something you wrote that might. I mean, well, it, it's often maybe ninety nine is too high. Um, often it's basically about like something that was said about them or they're blocking something they think somebody else is saying about them. It's all high school stuff. That's not a sign of a, of a, of a white house where everybody is unified and healthy and, uh, and all rowing in the same direction. And, you know, the old line about uh, the beatings will stop once morale improves is, um, <laughs> is a real, I mean, this is, I just having spent so much time with the Carter white house uh, on this. And obviously we all know what the le the leaks did to, uh, to Nixon. Um, where's that from? Oh, it's just a just a I you know, that. it's, it's a, a great lie. It's an old cliche about management. <laughs> but um, what I think is different, even than than Nixon. Nixon, I mean, H.R. Haldeman had a, and and to some extent, Ehrlichman had like an affection for and connection to to Nixon and his career. That is that was like this binding, like as out of some sci fi novel and. 
I don't know that you have you have that with family members at some level here, but um, I guess my point is that I- in a situation where people are clamped together and are not bound by some other thing, you can't just enforce that clamp the whole time. You've got to give them another reason to all go together, and it can't just be the orders loudly given and assertions boldly made. There is like there's a darkness about this week that was hitting me really hard. This feeling that. Because perhaps Trump is attacking Sessions and taking some heat from Breitbart and Rush Limbaugh on that front, he started feeding red meat to his base in this visceral way. The going after Hillary Clinton is part of it. The Boy Scout speech, in particular, this just, to me, horrifying rant he went on about immigrants killing innocent girls in a speech, which was literally like out of some... I don't know what to say about it. Like, it was so over the top, such a form of race baiting. I mean, it, it like just seemed like something that could have come out of the mouth of George Wallace, except that now, he, you know, we're talking about immigrants instead of black people. And and then the transgender order, which we're about to talk about soon. I, it, there's a way in which one wonders if we're going to see this kind of turn of the Trump presidency toward its darkest cultural impulses, the ones that we started with in the inaugural speech about American carnage. And that is the way to kind of try to keep the base together as the White House essentially like starts to just come apart at the seams. And then the other thing I was thinking about this week was that in the original White House staff, you had, you know, some like new kind of destroy everything personalities like Steve Bannon, but you also had some like traditional Republican operatives, Reince Priebus, Sean Spicer, doing their traditional thing. Now we have Spicer gone. We have Scaramucci completely turning on Reince Priebus on Thursday morning and Wednesday night over some like completely made up leak of Scaramucci's financial disclosures forms, which it turns out were public documents. And that was how the political reporter who reported on them got them. I mean, this is craziness. And and so I also wonder if we're entering into like the next phase of the Trump presidency in which Priebus will be gone soon enough and Scaramucci will fire a bunch of people. Maybe they're leaking or maybe they're just not loyal to him and that we're really going to have the sort of full takeover of these like fringe forces. But in the service of what? What is the thing everybody yeah. is moving towards? And you, again, in this uh, reporting that I was doing about healthcare, like what they're scratching their head about uh, in Republican legislators in Congress is not anything that has to do with the leak. It has to do with the Boy Scout speech and the, and the, and the president's tweets and the president's lack of negotiating involvement and, uh, and what he's doing to Sessions. Like that's all stuff that's coming directly from the president's behavior, not a leak. I, well, I mean, I was going to say this in our next topic, which we're about to get to, but it is – it is astonishing to me that here we are, we have climate change, we have an enormous inequality problem, we have an opioid crisis, we have a healthcare system that is completely in trauma, we have, you know, wars, we're engaged in wars in Afghanistan, in Iraq, there's a war against ISIS, we have no trade policy, we have a kind of like a conflict brewing, not a conflict, but a, a separation brewing with Europe, we have a, a Russia that is committing profound acts of of meddling all over the world and to us and our allies nothing of this is being discussed or acted on in any way except maybe healthcare but only destructively it's pretty astonishing and depressing to have a a political system that is not grappling at all with the major issues and when you compare it to a country like china which is 
in everything it does, it is grappling strategically with the major issues that that nation is facing. And it really makes us look bad. One thing that my colleague Kara Cordy pointed out was the president went to Ohio, gave a speech, never mentioned opioids, which is two things. One, uh, it's a particular problem for Ohio. It is a problem that hits the forgotten man that he is supposedly the champion of. And three, there's money in the one of the health care bills that he could take credit for, whether it's whether he could or couldn't legitimately take credit for it. Who cares? He could have pretended, he could have to, pretended to take credit for and go to the state and say, this is what I'm doing for the people who brought me, the people you, 7,000 of you in the audience. This is what I'm doing every day fighting for you. Like that was just just didn't none of that. So that's a way in which this the the chaos in the White House is not only getting in the way of what they're trying to do, but it's also there are things that could be done, even you know, that, that aren't being done. The future of America is in your hands. This is not a movie trailer, and it's not a political ad, but it is a call to action. I'm Mila Atmos, and I'm passionate about unlocking the power of everyday citizens. On our podcast, Future Hindsight, we take big ideas about civic life and democracy and turn them into action items for you and me. Every Thursday, we talk to bold activists and civic innovators to help you understand your power and your power to change the status quo. Find us at futurehindsight.com or wherever you listen to podcasts. In a Wednesday morning tweet, which is the usual uh, way that Washington announces major policy shifts, the president announced that transgender people would be barred from serving in the United States military in any way. The president claims he made this decision after consulting military brass. He named none such brass, and his Pentagon was caught obviously flat-footed by the announcement. Transgender soldiers and sailors and other service members were only recently allowed to serve openly following a decision late in his term by President Obama, which indeed came after much consultation with the Pentagon. This apparently is reversing that decision, although I don't even know if it actually officially reverses it or something else has to happen to reverse it. Why, Emily, would President Trump do this? Are there politics of it that are sensical that you can see? I mean, forget the kind of moral case, which is non-existent i mean the some the white house made some argument that this was going to force purple and red state democrats to get behind a policy that's not popular in those places i mean i don't know i guess you could conclude that from all of the um dissent over bathroom access but i think this is a different issue i mean and i think the fact that as john mentioned a whole bunch of republicans in congress came out against this shift is pretty good evidence of that. I mean, these are people who are serving our country, and there is something incredibly inhumane about the notion of discharging them when, by all accounts, they're doing their jobs and in some cases are in key roles. A lot of money has been spent on their training. I mean, there's there's something about rolling back progress at moments like this that seems so cruel and heartless. And the other thing is it's going to be very hard to make a case that the military called for this for any kind of tactical reason or, you know, for the old idea that gets trotted out that it's, I think President Trump in his tweet said it was disruptive to the forces. Like the military studied this. There's a big RAND analysis. They figured out how to do it in a way that they didn't think would be disruptive. Mathis, the defense secretary, is on vacation. Not clear that he knew about this in advance. Doesn't seem to be something he was working toward. And so what we really have here is just like 
prejudice. And then there's also going to be a legal challenge if this actual, this tweet turns into an actual executive order. Because of the animus motivating it and because the policy is so broad, we're not talking just about people in combat, though I don't know why that would even matter. But the fact, the idea of just like, cleansing from the military thousands of people from every single job based on what it's has a it's it just i yeah like the political calculation might be off and certainly all the other given rationales seem wrong so i think you've mostly named the public rationale money unit cohesion and disruption uh which i guess is a version of unit cohesion which have been used to keep women from serving in the military from keeping african americans serving in the military Politico reported that this was part of securing money for the border wall. Essentially, there were some conservative Republicans who who weren't going to allow the funding to go forward and were holding it up based on this fight over transgender troops. And so the president just was like, screw it, I'll cut to the chase here and get this solved. So this was another instance of what a president's supporters might see as disruptive. You know, I'm just going to tweet out the policy and, and everybody can just catch up. So that's the way the, the positive view and the down the negative view, of course, is that it gets in the way of a goal here by turning into total chaos. This is what causes people to leak when you feel like stuff can just happen out of nowhere, where the careful process you were working on can just be short circuited by the boss. It, it, it uh, atrophies any sense of loyalty or team spirit. You start sitting around and leaking or it gives you an opportunity to get, pick up the phone and call a reporter and say, good God, can you see what you know is happening here? And it's happening in these four other places. But I have been struck by the, by the Republican response, not just from the regular quarters. I mean, in other words, you could imagine, uh, you know, the normal Republican senatorial critics, but this included also Joni Ernst and, and uh, Orrin Hatch and Grassley and, um, uh, and I think it's over t- over 10 now, who, Richard Shelby, who came out against the president's move. This was a party where the Republican nominee in 2004 was uh, running on a platform of an amendment to the Constitution to ban gay marriage. So there's a distance they've traveled from 2004 till now. I mean, so on the substance, the, the RAND study found, quote, little to no impact on unit cohesion, operational effectiveness or readiness from including transgender troops and other these are in other militaries. On the kind of money question, it's a ludicrously small amount of money. It's several million dollars, eight million dollars maybe. And as some wag pointed out, the military spends $41 million on Viagra alone. It's hard to see that this is going to really bankrupt the military's health system. And then I also think as politics, this is probably not really going to win anywhere. It's not that there aren't you know, there aren't people who don't want transgender people to serve. It's just that this, like with marriage, is that when people are seeking, people are seeking to be included in something and they want to serve, yeah. it is really not very useful to tell them they can't if they're seeking to do something to help other people in their country. It's like that is not a really great winning argument. These are people who want to defend the nation. As we saw with when marriage equality was reframed as marriage equality, these are people who want to participate in this conservative institution of marriage. It became a much easier win and easier sell for those who supported it. Coming soon from Slate Podcasts. So first it was Dade County. Voters in the Miami area repealed civil rights for gay people by a two-to-one margin. In the late 1970s, cities around the country began rolling back anti-discrimination laws that protected gay people. And then it was Wichita, St. Paul, Eugene. Successful campaigns against the gay community which shocked us all. A state senator from California watched the laws fall and saw an opportunity. 
Homosexuality is a most repulsive lifestyle. His name was John Briggs, and he wanted to deliver the anti-gay movement its biggest prize yet. California realized that they were coming for us. I'm Christina Cotarucci. This season on Slow Burn, we'll explore how a nationwide backlash against gays and lesbians led to a massive showdown in California. Now it's something called Proposition 6, the Briggs Initiative. It would call for firing any teachers in California who practice homosexuality. Your life as you knew it would be destroyed. We've got to fight back. We can't let this happen in California. The Briggs Initiative would be the first statewide vote on gay rights. With so much at stake, young people became activists. We were all coming out all day long, every day. (laughs) And activists became leaders. My name is Harvey Milk, and I'm here to recruit you. Slow Burn, Season 9, Gays Against Briggs. Out May 22nd, wherever you listen. If we lose here, it'll be 50 years before we ever get back up again. Like the drag queens say, take out the earrings, sharpen the nails. There ain't no going back. Several years ago, when I was still full-time at Slate, I started a podcast called Working, which I was really proud of. It's a podcast where the host interviews people about their jobs and really how they do their jobs. It's a very nitty-gritty, down-in-the-details what do I do all day kind of podcast. And I am delighted to say that podcast outlasted me at Slate. And it continues with Jacob Brogan as the host. He is doing a series of great interviews with people and with very interesting jobs. He recently interviewed a schooner captain, a community internet organizer, a hair entrepreneur. So try this podcast, listen to working every Sunday afternoon while you're not at work at slate.com slash working. Let's go to cocktail chatter uh, as you contemplate the end times. But speaking of end times, before I get to my chatter introduction, how many post-apocalyptic books can there possibly be? My daughter just gave me <laughs> one, which is the post-apocalyptic Amish book. <laughs> what happens in that? I don't know. I'm like 20 pages in. There, it's there. You know, everyone's everyone's electricity is stopping working back in in Lancaster. Well, actually, but, right. Wait, and apo- also, the Amish would be ahead of the yes, curve, right? Because they know how to like work with electricity. That, I think yeah. that's going to be the theme of it. Wouldn't the what would the apocalyptic Amish book be? In the apocalyptic Amish book, there would be tons of electricity everywhere, and right. you couldn't get away from it. People <laughs> would come to your house that's and right. like install all this electricity, <laughs> and you'd be like forced the, to carry the government, like the dictators, would Corvette. force you to do that. But what's weird is that that would be a good book. Which is this is actually the second post-apocalyptic book I've read that has Amish in it. So there was another series, the last Policeman series had Amish in it. The Ben uh, Winters Underground Is this the fault of the publishers? Does this have to do with your decisions about what you're reading? Well, it was, was, I started housekeeping and then I was like, you know what? I just am not going to get to housekeeping. And, and housekeeping so. is so good okay, I'm right, registering I'll, my disappointment in you all You right. are a literary creature You will love housekeeping okay. Keep going Okay. The thing about post-apocalyptic books Is there should now be a post-apocalyptic books About the apocalypse that comes from the overload of post-apocalyptic books Right Yeah, right. That's, there you go Free idea for somebody Just um, give me credit in the acknowledgement That sounds like a real winner Well, it's like the way that, that <laughs> Publishers mob- are going to be lining up for that one <laughs> 
mobsters after the movie and the book of the godfather came out mobsters started using the language that mario puzo had invented yeah. which wasn't actually how they talked uh anyway so let's go to cocktail well, hey, chatter. why not he did a good job when you are uh offering people a drink they cannot refuse john dickerson what will you be chattering about well my chatter is a kind of is a call out to the good people in uh gabfest land i i, I did this in the middle of um my whistle stop too and it it elicited a fantastic uh, email just now from a listener whose name I'm not going to say because I don't know whether he wanted me to or not. But anyway, I was a call out to people who know about mergers, who know about expertise and whether it transfers from one sphere to the other. This is obviously in connection with my obsession about the presidency and how we train presidents. And I was doing some reading recently that suggested that if you have expertise in one area, it actually can be an impediment to switching to a new job because in your expert capacity in one position, you rely on your instinct and intuition, which is honed by lots and lots of experience and the pattern recognition that comes from familiarity with a certain set of facts. Then when you get into the itchiness of a new endeavor, you should go down to like beginner's mind, the basic approach to the new thing. But because you've relied on instinct for so long in your previous thing, you expect that your instinct should be usable in that new endeavor. And therefore, it makes an, a barrier to doing the new thing. So anyway, anybody out there who works in this area, thinks about the psychology of this, deals with mergers, which is essentially taking two companies that have individual interests and merging them together. The fellow who just wrote me was a former infantry officer who actually in this email gives the actual proper word for what I was trying to describe earlier, which is strategic alignment. Um, when you don't have an institution where there is strategic alignment for goals and cultural norms, everybody's moving towards, you don't have a well-functioning organization. So send emails to, I guess, uh, whistlestop at slate.com, which is where I had my whistlestop people send emails with your thoughts and uh, experiences in this. I was just having dinner with somebody the other night and who's contemplating a career change. And she said she was looking forward to being the she was. She didn't want to be the smartest person in the room anymore. She wanted to be the dumbest person in the room. The Obamas used to make their kids do one thing they were proficient at and one thing they were horrible at so that they could experience what it's like to not be good at something and then have to figure out how to be better at the thing. I was also struck by there's this business book that's quite popular called What Got You Here Won't Get You There. The idea that all the talents that got you to the corner office, you then have to build a whole new set of talents or else uh, you won't be successful. And it goes back to my original theory about how campaigns don't train you for the presidency and all that. So mm. the Peter principle is also related to that. Mm -hmm. I feel yeah. like every conversation somehow comes back to the Peter principle, by the way. I feel it? like it's, it's huh. anyway. Interesting. Emily, what is your chatter? I read a book which was so good that I'm sure everyone will hear about soon. It's not out quite yet, but I checked. You can order it on Amazon. It's called Manhattan Beach. It's the new book by Jennifer Egan, who's one of my favorite writers. I'm a huge fan of hers. Um, she wrote A Visit from the Goon Squad, among other previous novels. And this is a novel about World War II, but from a perspective I had never really thought about before. It has an interesting kind of like gangster part of the book, but it's really about a young woman who wants to serve her country. She wants to become a diver in New York City as part of the war effort. And there's just these incredibly rich close-up descriptions of that world and what she um, is experiencing and what the world of diving is like. It's just really good. I think it's different from novels that Egan has written before. I got 
really caught up in it. So check it out. Order it on Amazon. Read it when it comes out. It's called Manhattan Beach by Jennifer Egan. Sounds great. I want to chatter about a musician I heard. Uh, Hannah and I went to Knoxville at the recommendation of the John and Ann Dickerson, or with the advice of John and Ann Dickerson. We spent our anniversary weekend in Knoxville, and which is a great city. I strongly recommend going to Knoxville. So I will chatter a recommendation just generally of Knoxville. But we just stumbled into a concert at a bar, and it was a musician named Jeremy Pinnell, who's coming down from Kentucky, apparently. He lives on the Kentucky-Ohio border uh and his band and it was amazing and he you know he, he's present on spotify and he's somebody he's like a waylon jennings sort of honky tonk some western swing and i think you know there's a lot of great western music out there and sort of old-time western music and i'm sure there are a hundred bar bands um where you'll will find people who are who are good but i thought jeremy pinnell had a just incredible voice it was like a voice if you guys remember David Carr listening to David Carr talk and you felt like mm, David yeah. Carr, like, man, that's a voice that has seen some shit. <laughs> this guy's voice is beautiful and it's just like worn and it has been through some terrible things. You know, it's been through some terrible things and it's, the songs are very melancholy and gorgeous. I recommend giving Jeremy Pinnell, P-I-N-N-E-L-L a listen. Nice. That is the Gap Fest for today. Our show is produced by Jocelyn Frank. The excellent, always excellent. Never gets enough praise, Jocelyn Frank. Our intern is Kevin Townsend, who has a new podcast that he's producing, The Atlantic's podcast. Um, you should listen to that. What is that called, Kevin? Radio Atlantic. Jeff Goldberg and Matt Thompson Radio and Atlantic. Alex Wagner. Mazel top on that. It was number one on iTunes, so that was good. Leave us a rating on Apple Podcasts so that we can be number one again on iTunes. It really helps us. If you leave us a rating. And we really appreciated all the reviews and ratings we got last week. We did. So leave us a rating and review. For Emily Bazelon and John Dickerson, I'm David Plotz. Thanks for listening. We will talk to you next week. Hi, this is Dahlia Lithwick, host of Slate's legal podcast, Amicus. If you're listening to this show, you might be interested in Amicus's live show that we're hosting in Washington, D.C., on Tuesday, May the 14th. My colleague, Mark Joseph Stern, and I will be talking to some amazing guests, including Sherilyn Eiffel and a sitting state Supreme Court justice, all about how originalism, a relatively recently invented way of interpreting the Constitution, has taken over the Supreme Court and radically reshaped the law. It's been doctrinal rocket fuel for the conservative legal movement and facilitated the rolling back of abortion rights, the expansion of gun rights, and the obliteration of the separation of church and state. And as another wildly consequential Supreme Court term careers to its end, the court's originalists are on a tear. But there's something you can do about it, and we hope you'll join us in D.C. on May 14th to explore the possible pathways out of the current situation. Go to slate.com slash amicus live for tickets. Coming soon from Slate Podcasts. So first it was Dade County. Voters in the Miami area repealed civil rights for gay people by a two-to-one margin. In the late 1970s, cities around the country began rolling back anti-discrimination laws that protected gay people. And then it was Wichita, St. Paul, Eugene. Successful campaigns against the gay community, which shocked us all. 
A state senator from California watched the laws fall and saw an opportunity. Homosexuality is a most repulsive lifestyle. His name was John Briggs, and he wanted to deliver the anti-gay movement its biggest prize yet. California realized that they were coming for us. I'm Christina Cotarucci. This season on Slow Burn, we'll explore how a nationwide backlash against gays and lesbians led to a massive showdown in California. Now it's something called Proposition 6, the Briggs Initiative. And it would call for firing any teachers in California who practice homosexuality. Your life as you knew it would be destroyed. We've got to fight back. We can't let this happen in California. The Briggs Initiative would be the first statewide vote on gay rights. With so much at stake, young people became activists. We were all coming out all day long, every day. (laughs) And activists became leaders. My name is Harvey Milk, and I'm here to recruit you. Slow Burn, Season 9, Gays Against Briggs. Out May 22nd, wherever you listen. If we lose here, it'll be 50 years before we ever get back up again. Like the drag queens say, take out the earrings, sharpen the nails, there ain't no going back.